Tonight we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles by the door. Uh, You can feel free to grab one and use it, but you can read along with me as we go through this chapter together. So, well, today was kind of a manic weather day, wasn't it? It's like, got cold and then it got warm and we've got some sunshine right now, which we're, we're thankful for. Any of you guys flood? Any of your basements flood? Nobody? You guys did? Had a bad one? One behind you there? I heard all of the sump pumps at Home Depot through the whole city were out. Uh, we had a, a friend of ours that had their sump pump go out and they had to drive to Pueblo and it was the last sump pump at the Home Depot in Pueblo. So lots of water. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us and thank you for the message that's given to us in your word. And we ask that it would really sink into our hearts and for some that know this chapter well, that it'd be really uh, refreshing and come in a fresh way for those that are studying it for the first time or that it would impact them. And God, we're so eternally grateful for the gift of your son and we pray that the magnitude, the height and the depth and the width of your love would be manifest in our hearts tonight. We know we can't learn apart from the Holy Spirit, so Holy Spirit, would you have your way in this service? Father, where there's a need for encouragement, I pray that you would provide it. Lord, where there be refreshment that comes from tonight of drawing near to you. Lord, where there needs to be correction, would you gently give that to us where we need it in our lives? We're all going through different things and we come before you We also want to pray for our community, pray for Colorado Springs and those that don't know you as our Savior. Lord, would you give us a heart, uh, an opportunity. We pray for opportunities to share the gospel with those that don't know you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In this chapter, Paul is sharing the way that he came to Corinth. He's reviewing with this church in the manner that he came. He comes in weakness, he comes in fear, he comes in trembling. Maybe not ways that you would picture the Apostle Paul, but that's how he came to this church. But he also came to them declaring the testimony of God, declaring the cross. This is one of those chapters that reminds us of the power of the cross, the importance of the cross, how it's touched our lives and how we can share it with others. And also the second half of this chapter deals with the Holy Spirit in our lives and how through God's spirit we learn and through God's spirit we grow. And it's important for us to be walking in the spirit and looking to the spirit of God. This is one of my personal favorite chapters in the Bible because of the message of the cross. And I know if you come, I say that almost every other week, but I really mean it this time. And this is a good chapter. I'm excited to to go through it. So verse one of chapter two. And I, brethren, when I came to you, didn't come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. We have to go back to chapter one to look at what we studied a few weeks ago. And Paul says that the wisdom of God is greater and stronger than the ideas and the philosophies of this world. And if the world considers God's wisdom to be foolish, then he would rather share the foolishness or the weakness of God, that the message of the cross is where the power comes. And he makes a deliberate choice when he comes to this city, Corinth, to not come with excellency of speech. It's a culture, it's the Greek culture that's given to philosophy, that's given to intellect. We would think from a natural perspective, if you were to reach an academic crowd, how would you go to them? 
If you were gonna go to try to reach UCCS or Harvard or, or Yale or Colorado College or that person in your life that has a strong academic background, many times you'd think, I have to go with an excellency of speech. I have to be a great orator in bringing this to them. And we oftentimes think of teaching ministry, pulpit type of ministry, and we think in order for it to be effective, the person in the pulpit has to have a golden tongue. They have to be a great orator. We tend to look up to great orators when it comes to pulpit ministry, but Paul intentionally says here, I didn't come with that. That wasn't my goal in coming to you was to try to come with persuasive words, but I came declaring to you the testimony of God because he knows the powers not in man's intellect or man's words or man's persuasion, but what is powerful is God's message, God's testimony. And we oftentimes think of our own testimony, what God has done in, in our lives, and that's what's not being referred to here. It's actually God's own testimony, God's own story. What is he testifying about himself? And the testimony of God is the sacrifice of his son. And if you look down just at the next verse, into verse two, it says, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's the testimony of God, is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and Paul's determined to know that. I want to try to find a way in your imagination right now for you to relate once again of God giving his son for us and what that, what that means. And if you're a parent, if I can get into your heart as, as a parent, is there a time when your kids have gone through a tremendous amount of suffering? For some of you, maybe you've walked a, a road where you've had a child that's been diagnosed with cancer. We had a little boy at the 11 o'clock service, his name's Colin, and he's five months old, and he's fighting cancer. And you think about what his mom and dad are going through with a brand new little baby and all of the trips uh, to the hospital, and it pulls your heart as a parent, doesn't it? Maybe there was an accident with one of your kids that ended up not being life-threatening, but they broke an arm or they cut their head open or there was a car accident and they got a, a big wound and all of a sudden you look in the back seat and your, your little son, your little daughter, their shirt's just filled with blood. And what does that do for you as a parent? You know, what, what does that stir inside of you as, as a parent? Today I sat across the table with a family from our church that lost their 25-year-old son and they're planning their son's funeral and the dad's eyes are just filled with tears. Is just bawling in my office over the loss of his son. It's powerful, isn't it? There's nothing really quite like it when it comes to the kind of love that we feel towards our children and the loss of our children and to see our children go through pain. But the testimony of God is that the father chose to sacrifice the son. This is the will of the father. This was the plan of the father. It's what Jesus expressed over and over through the gospels. I've come to do my father's will. Even more so than Jesus' love for us, it was his love for the Father. And the Father put this in motion so that we could be saved, so that we could be the children of God. And there's power in that. There's power in that message. For us as believers tonight to reconnect with the immense love of God that God would give his only begotten son. The Father only speaks two times in the Gospels audibly. We often wonder what does the Father's voice sound like? I'd love to hear his, his voice audibly. 
But what did he say both times? He said, this is my beloved son. That's the big message of God. That's the testimony of God, is this is my son, I love him. And I have given him as my only begotten to die for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be my son and my daughter. And that's impacted us. If you know Christ your savior, that's the core of us. That's what brought me to salvation, was understanding God's love demonstrated on the cross. And you know what, church? That's what we have when we go out to people that don't know Christ as their savior. You might not be the best speaker. You might not be extremely persuasive. You might not have the best argument when it comes to proving creation over an atheist. But do you know the testimony of God? Can you look someone in the eyes with absolute confidence and say, God loves you. The father sent his son to die for you. He died for your sins and rose again and give them the opportunity to consider and to wrestle with the love of God. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Corinth is a crazy city. It's a sinful city. Prostitution everywhere, out of control, has this terrible reputation for its sin and its crazy living. And Paul says, when I came in, I came with the testimony of the cross. I came with the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was determined. I I chose to know one thing among you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have to stay on topic in our own lives, in the meditation of our worship, and also in talking with others, especially with unbelievers, is it's not about politics. If someone doesn't know Christ as our savior, we don't wanna go down this rabbit trail of politics. We wanna go to the main thing of Jesus Christ, don't we? And him crucified, and what Christ has done for him on the cross, and, and bring him back to what do you think about Jesus Christ? It's really not about all of the arguments of this or, or that, or did Adam have a belly button, or what do you do with the lost guy over in the island? And you're patient with those questions, you're not rude, but in our hearts and our minds, we're praying, how do I bring this conversation back to Jesus Christ? I wanna consider for a few moments the depth of Paul's statement. I'm determined to know one thing, one thing among you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. What's the power of the cross? The cross of Christ demonstrates the love of God and I encourage you to do a study of all of the different verses in the Bible that talk about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're just gonna touch on a few. But the cross demonstrates the love of God. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love towards us, towards me, towards you. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One is one of the foundational questions that we all struggle with from time to time. Does God really love me? Sometimes even as believers. If you knew the kind of week that I had, if you know the thoughts that I'm thinking, if you saw the struggles as a believer, could I be confident that God loves me? And God's answer, it's not my answer, it's God's answer, at the cross, we gaze upon the cross, it's absolutely yes. God demonstrated his love towards you. He clearly showed his love towards you and that he died for you while you were yet a sinner, while you were at your worst, while you didn't have a heart for God. Don't you think he continues to love you in the place that you're in? Maybe you've been wayward. Maybe you've fallen away from Christ. You've rebelled from Christ. God's love remains consistent. As we worship tonight, that's one of the things that we sang, is that your love's 
never changing. It's unending. It remains consistent and God clearly demonstrates his love upon the cross. I think some people aren't in the kingdom of God because they have a hard time believing that God would love them. God's love is for someone else. It's not for them personally. And we get to take them to truths like Romans 5.8. God clearly demonstrated his love and that he died for you while you were yet a sinner. Also, the cross of Christ reconciles us to God. This is Colossians 1 verse 9. For it pleased the Father, notice that, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So in Jesus, all the fullness of the Father dwells and by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his son. The cross of Jesus Christ, when we believe and trust in it, results in reconciliation where we have peace with God. We're forgiven, we're saved because of what Christ has done for us. That's why we're determined. We, we stay on this one topic of what Christ has done for us. There's a lot of things we can't reconcile in this life. There's a lot of things we can't figure out in this life. Do you have a few of those that you're wrestling with tonight? I just can't seem to reconcile this. I can't get this to make sense. The more I work this equation, the more I come up with confusion but the cross of Jesus Christ gives us the certainty that we're reconciled with God. We have peace with God, we have forgiveness, we, we have salvation. The cross of Christ fulfills the requirement of the law. This is Colossians 2 verse 14 that says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All of the things that the law says that we're sinners and writes against us, the cross of Jesus Christ has wiped it out. Well, if, if it's willful rebellion or if it's simply falling short of the law, God has cleansed it. It's the righteous fulfillment of the law. The cross of Jesus Christ brings us to, to that place. The cross of Christ clearly displays God's character. I think this is really important. The cross of Christ clearly displays God's character. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God didn't spare his son for you. The essence of this truth is if God didn't spare his son for you, then can you trust that he's gonna do good in your life? that he's not gonna withhold any good thing from you, that he's gonna freely give you all good things. This verse for me is foundational in times of trial, in times of testing. When God allows things that don't feel good, or I go to God and I say, God, I don't understand how this could be good because this feels bad. For instance, you lose your job. For instance, a loved one gets diagnosed with, with cancer. The list goes on and on, but we go back to God's character. We look at the cross. We look at the hands of Jesus Christ who died for us, and we go, this trial has passed through the hand of Jesus Christ. I know that God is good and he's doing good in my life. He's not gonna withhold anything from me. But at times, we have to lay hold of that by faith, don't we? we don't see, we walk by faith, we don't walk by sight, but we clearly understand God's character based upon the cross. Sometimes we get confused in the midst of our circumstances, but we're able to, to look at the cross. The last one that I'm gonna comment on tonight, there's a, a whole bunch more, but the cross of Christ clearly 
comforts our soul, or excuse me, the cross of Christ thoroughly comforts our soul. Isaiah 53 verse four says, surely he's bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's carried our sorrows. The cross of Jesus Christ, it accomplishes salvation, but it also provides us with comfort. There's not one rejection that Christ doesn't know exactly how that feels. The rejection of the cross was so deep, so immense, so thorough, that when we experience rejection in our lives, Christ goes, I've carried that sorrow. I've carried that grief. If you begin to study and analyze and meditate upon the cross of, of Jesus Christ, we go, oh, Christ, you understand this. You, you carried this to a far greater degree. That's where Paul prayed that he could fellowship with Christ's sufferings. As we suffer, then we're able to have an opportunity to fellowship with Christ in a greater way. We're desperately looking for comfort. We're desperately wondering what we should do. Chance mentioned it in, in worship. In our brokenness, what do we run to? We need to run to our crucified, resurrected Savior because he understands. Even just looking out in the room tonight, I know some of your pain and some of your struggles and some of your hardships. I don't know what that feels like. You're going through things that are very unique to you. But God knows exactly what it feels like. It's very fair to look at another human and say, you don't know what it feels like. Because they don't. Even if they've gone through something similar, but Christ understands. And out of his love for you, he carried it. He carried your grief. He carried your, your sorrow so you can come to the cross and experience the comfort of Jesus Christ. Are you starting to get a little bit of an idea of the depth of the cross? And if there's one place we need to go to personally, frequently and often, it's at the cross of Jesus Christ. And the place that we need to take others, believers and unbelievers, is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me, speaking of communion. Remember the broken body, remember the shed blood, fellowship with your Savior, dwell in that place. As we continue to walk with the Lord and churches continue in years as a, a brand new church, a church plant, usually has a clear vision of the power of the cross. But as time goes on, a church can move to its resources, can move to its good ideas, to move to man's wisdom and move away from the power of God. We don't want that. We wanna pray that God would keep our church centered and impacted with the cross of Jesus Christ. And also as we walk with the Lord, remember when you first got saved, how impacting the cross of Jesus Christ was to you? Like that was enough. <laughs> that was it. It was like, Jesus, you died for me. I'm such a scumbucket, you know? I'm such a sinner and you loved me while I was at my worst and you totally and completely forgive me. This is amazing and this is, is wonderful. And we never wanna lose that view. Think about the ears of our city that have never heard God's testimony. They haven't heard the testimony of God's love. God gave, gave his son for them specifically. And Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Do you ever picture the apostle Paul being like that? In, he says he's in these things. I'm in weakness, I'm in fear, I'm in much trembling. I don't picture Paul like that. 
When I read through the book of Acts, I tend to think of Paul more as superhero at supersonic speed. Don't you tend to view Paul that way? It's like, how in the world did he accomplish so much for Christ? He must have been subhuman and superman. And here Paul's saying, no. When I got to Corinth, I came in this place where I was weak and I was afraid and I was trembling. Some of the factors that contributed this, we go back to the book of Acts and we come to chapter 18 where it's recorded that Paul comes to Corinth for the first time. We look at the few prior chapters. Paul had been given a vision to go to Macedonia, to Asia. A man is appearing to him in this vision. He goes to Macedonia and what does he find? He finds a group of women praying by the river. Gets thrown into prison, beat up brutally. He's whipped, thrown to these stocks where deep into the prison and he begins to worship. In that place of worship, there was an earthquake. The jailer gets saved. Persecution arises and Paul has to leave and move on from that place, from the city of Philippi. So he comes to Thessalonica. Once again, persecution arises. They come looking for Paul. He's not home. So they grab his host, Jason. There's an angry mob. The whole city's up in arms. And they ultimately let Jason go when he's paid off. The scriptures say they pay security. They, they paid them off for, so Jason could be set free. I'm sure Paul's going, I wish they would have just grabbed me. Could you imagine if someone lets you stay in their home and then they get snatched by an angry mob simply by having you in their home? So, so he leaves from Thessalonica and then he goes to Berea and things are going pretty good. But the people that hated him from Thessalonica follow him to Berea. <laughs> so he has to leave Berea and he comes to Athens, to the intellectual hub of, of the world there, there in Greece, gets mocked. After Athens, not a lot of fruit in Athens, a little bit of fruit, but no church is birthed in, in Athens. He then comes to Corinth. So do you understand a little bit more in depth why he was in a place of fear? He was in a place of trembling. He was in a place of, of weakness. Don't you appreciate about the Apostle Paul that he just admits it? Here he is, the great Apostle Paul, writing to a church that's really messed up. As we'll continue to read, I mean, they're like messed up beyond messed up. Out of order, willful sin, and Paul has the humility to this broken group to share his own weakness and say, guys, I did not come to you having my act together. I came to you in this place, in weakness and fear and in trembling. This is an encouragement for us to continue in what God has called us to, even in the presence of fear, even in the presence of weakness, even in the presence of much trembling. It's hard for us to hear, but it's exactly where God wants us. It's exactly the last place that I wanna be, the last place that I wanna dwell, but God's strength is made perfect in weakness. We need to be careful when we're in that place where we're confident, where we're strong, where we've got all of the answers, that moves us into a direction of pride. Thankful for this verse, it brings us great comfort to know that Paul struggled with the same things that we struggled with as well. I remember being in Bible college and being in school ministry. I went to Bible college right after high school, then right into our school ministry. And in my early 20s, I knew everything about pastoring and ministry. It was amazing. 
our school of ministry was in a four-bedroom house with 25 guys that was on property of the church there in, in, in Southern Oregon. It was a very large church, a very active church, and all I saw in that church was all of their weaknesses and how all of the pastoral staff could do things better. And I, 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 I knew the answers. And me and my buddies, we would sit up late, late at night and go, why are the pastors doing this? And they need to do this. It wasn't sin issues. It was all methodology and how the church could run better and function better. God's got a sense of humor and then he allows me to be a lead pastor. And I look back and I go, those guys were so wise and they did such a great job. And now after pastoring for a while, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? People come to me and go, things could be organized better and this could be better. And I'm like, absolutely. Sounds like the Lord's calling you, right? You know, it's like the Lord is absolutely calling you to that. And we go through those phases where it's like, we're so confident, we're so strong, we've got all the answers. And then we try it for a while. We get down the road for a while and we go, oh man, I'm filled with fear, I'm filled with weakness, I'm filled with with trembling. I was such a great parent before I had kids. You know what I'm saying? You know, you ever, were you ever there when, before you were a parent and you like, you had it figured out and you told everybody this is exactly what you need to do and maybe look down on other people because why can't you get it right and get your kids in shape and all this stuff and then God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? He allows you to be a parent and you walk down the road and you go, man, there's weakness, there's sin, there's failure, there's, there's trembling but there's confidence in what? There's confidence in the testimony of God. It's not about us. It's not what we bring to the table. It's God's power and it's his testimony. In verse four, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So now he's introducing the second topic in this chapter. First, it's the testimony of God, Christ crucified. And now as we declare that testimony, we wanna do it in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. We get too concerned with, do I have the perfect illustration? Do I have the right intellectual rap to talk to this person? And we are not concerned enough with, God, do I have your spirit? Me sharing with my neighbor, is it gonna be a demonstration of your spirit? Me talking with my kids, is it gonna be a demonstration of your spirit? Me talking with my coworkers, is it gonna be a demonstration of the spirit? Because the power is not in our persuasive argument, but it's in the spirit of God, amen? So it's not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So as we are coming into a conversation or a conversation comes upon us, in that moment, we need to be seeking what the spirit of God is doing in the lives of those people, in the life of that person that you're talking to, because the spirit knows things that we're not aware of. And the spirit wants to lead the conversation. The spirit wants to, to lead the Bible study. A lot of preparation as a pastor is gone into persuasive words of human wisdom. As pastors, we wanna have the great illustration. We wanna be clever, we wanna present it in a creative way, and there's nothing wrong with sermon preparation, but what would happen to the pulpits of America if we were more concerned, are we filled with the Spirit of God? Does the Spirit of God have the opportunity to speak through his word, to demonstrate the power of the Spirit? In verse five, and this is the reason why, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't want people 
leaving going, wow, Paul is such an amazing teacher. He's such an amazing orator. He's so funny, he's so clever, he's so great to listen to. He wanted people walking away going, wow, God loves me. I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me. He wanted their faith established in the testimony of Jesus Christ, not in the persuasion of men's words. He wanted them to experience the power of God. And the power of God is so much stronger than men's words and men's wisdom. Verse six, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Paul says, I'm speaking wisdom, but I'm speaking it to the mature. I'm speaking it to the spiritually hungry. I'm speaking it to those that wanna learn more. And he understands that some aren't in that place. He says, I'm not talking about the wisdom of this age. I'm not talking about those that do impressive things outside of Christ. He's speaking to those who are spiritually minded. And he says, not the rulers of this age. Those who have those powerful positions of this age at this time, they're coming to nothing. In verse seven, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. So here is the wisdom of God, it's spoken in a mystery. Now, not a mystery that's impossible to figure out. God's truth is not some kind of puzzle that we can't figure out, but the word mystery is something that was previously hidden that's now been revealed. In the Old Testament, it was hidden, but now it's clearly revealed that Christ has died for our sins and rose again. So he speaks in this mystery that was given, that was ordained before the ages of glory. Do you know why Jesus spoke in parables? Jesus spoke in these simple stories that everybody could relate to, but why did he do it? So that you had to search for the message. You had to search for the message. The parable of the sower. Here's the seed. It's planted on these different types of soil. And you're walking away going, what does that have to do with anything? That's something that I see happen every day. What in the world is Christ talking about? Because he wanted you to search for it. He wanted you to be hungry for it. And so sometimes God puts it just at a little bit beyond where we're at. So we've got to reach. We've got to be hungry, we've gotta search after. Have you ever sought after wisdom on a particular topic, a truth? You're like, oh Lord, I really need to know what your word says about this and God allows you to search it out for a couple months. Why does he do that? Why does he speak in parables? Because he's looking for those that are spiritually hungry, that will say, I'm gonna search for the truth of, of scripture. In verse eight, which none of the rulers of this age knew for if they had known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. He's speaking of Pontius Pilate. He's speaking of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those that took the driver's seat in the crucifixion of Christ. Why did they crucify Christ? Because they didn't know the wisdom of God. They didn't know that it was God's plan. If they would have known, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. Why do the rulers of this age do so many things that are anti-Christ? Because they don't know Christ. They don't know the wisdom of God. They don't know the power of God displayed upon the cross. The next few verses are gonna get really fun. So if kind of getting to that point of the Bible study where you're checking your watch a little bit, I understand it is so hard to sit through a whole entire message. I think one of the reasons that God's allowed me to be a pastor is because he knows I couldn't sit for 45 minutes. It's hard to do what you're doing right now. 
These next few verses are really fun. They're really encouraging. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Eye has not seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. Go on a journey with me. What's the coolest thing you've ever seen? Okay, you got it? You with me? Coolest thing you've ever seen. And then take the top three coolest things you've ever seen and combine it into one image. Like, for instance, the mountains, beautiful, Aspen, Colorado, Telluride, Colorado, and Maui meet together, like the same place. You could be at Maui at the beach and then boom, you could be at Telluride, Colorado. Just the coolest thing you've ever seen. And then take the best thing that you've ever heard. Maybe the symphony, you're like, oh, this is amazing. Maybe your favorite band. It's not everybody's favorite band, but it's your favorite band. It's sweetness to your ears. I heard a Beatles song today. I wasn't alive in the Beatles era. I haven't listened to a lot of Beatles music. Just happened to catch it on the radio. And it was really good. I was like, that is, some of you are like, yeah, it is good. So your band, all right? The symphony, it's there. Maybe it's the quietness of a stream up in the mountains. But those sounds, you go, the best sounds that you've ever heard. And the absence of the really terrible sounds. The absence of, you know, someone snoring when you're trying to go to sleep. Just the good sounds, okay? The best. And then just allow your heart to imagine things you've never seen and you've never heard. If you could just think of some imaginary pretend, what would it be like? And what would that place be like? And then God declares to us that it hasn't even entered into our hearts what he has prepared for those who love him for those that love him. Jesus promised in John 14 that he said he goes to prepare a place for us and if he went to prepare a place for us, will he not come again and receive us unto himself? Now this place is pretty stinking awesome, isn't it? I learned today from my third grade daughter that an elephant has 400 muscles just in its trunk. That's incredible, God's design. That trunk is amazing and does amazing things. 400 muscles just in the trunk. Did you know there's 36,000 species of spiders? Now, spiders may not be your favorite, but that's pretty amazing. God would just in his creativity go, hmm, I'm just gonna make 36,000 different types of spiders. And that's just ones that we've discovered, not including the ones who've gone extinct. God spoke all of these things to, into existence And he says, you know what? Anything you've experienced here, anything that you can imagine, it doesn't even begin to come close what God has prepared. So if he created this in six days, imagine how awesome heaven is as he's been preparing a place for us. God's perspective of heaven compared to ours is completely different. Church, brother, sister in Christ, it is not a bummer to God when someone goes home to be with the Lord. God says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. I don't really like using the word precious. It's just not in my vocabulary very often. So maybe a better translation would be awesome. Awesome. Totally rad. Cool. Far out. The best. It's the best in the eyes of the Lord, the death of the saints.
God goes, wow, you finally get to come home. You finally get to, to be with me. Why? Because he knows the glory of heaven. He knows what he's bringing somebody into. But this is where this gets really cool. And this is where I don't wanna lose you in verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So my eye hasn't seen it, my ear hasn't heard it, my heart can't imagine it, but the spirit has spoken it to me. So it's not that we don't have any idea of what heaven's gonna be like because the spirit of God is speaking to our hearts and preparing us as believers and has revealed it to us. Notice what verse says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. And that's where everybody knows verse nine, but they've never looked at verse 10. And verse 10 is telling us that the spirit has given us a foreshadowing of what heaven has been like. Have you ever had that moment where you're enjoying God's creation? You're sitting on the beach, you're up in the mountains and the spirit of God just begins to speak to you and say, this is nothing compared to what heaven is gonna be like. You just wait. Have you ever been completely devastated by a trial a heartbreak in your life and the spirit of God comes and speaks to you and says, hold on, there's eternal life. You're gonna get through this, you're gonna make it. It's what the spirit does. And in these verses, we see the role of the spirit in our lives and how the spirit gives us hope and the spirit teaches us. The end of verse 10 tells us the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So the spirit's searching us but also the spirit knows the deep things of God. Verse 12, for what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? This is true, right? No one really knows what's going on inside except for you. You know, you know. I can give the great exterior, but yet what's going on inside? I know inside of my, my own heart. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So our own spirit searches out our soul and the spirit of God knows all things about God and communicates to us. Now if you're new to the scriptures and the idea of the Trinity, it's this. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but yet one God. So when we speak of the spirit, the spirit is God. He's a distinct member of of the Trinity, but yet they're, they're one God. So this is the role of the Spirit in verse 12. The Spirit knows the intimate detail of the Trinity in verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So the Spirit is communicating to us the spiritual truths of God. In John 14 through 17, Jesus is getting ready to be crucified resurrected and ascended and he's preparing his disciples and say when I go the spirit's coming to you and the spirit's going to be your comforter your spirit's going to be your helper the spirit's going to lead you and guide you into all truth you're going to have such a profound relationship with the spirit that it's actually beneficial for you to for me to leave could you imagine hearing that from Christ here Christ is physically with you for most of us we'd go you know what if I could trade places and actually have Christ physically be with me, I I would choose that. But Jesus says, no, it's far better for the spirit to live inside of you, for Christ to live inside of you, and it becomes internal instead of external. As long as Christ was standing there, it was external. But when he's crucified, risen and ascended, the spirit comes in them, it was internal. They were the temple of the Holy Spirit, 
And then the spirit begins to help, to comfort, to teach. Really encourage you as you read the scriptures to ask that the Holy Spirit would teach you, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures to you. I grew up around the things of God. I grew up around memorizing scripture, reading scripture, and I never understood it. It was always completely confusing to me. And as God got a hold of my heart and the spirit of God was inside of me, the spirit of God began to open up the word of God to me. And you can learn the word of God. Why? Because if you're the child of God and God's spirit's inside of you, you have the best teacher of all. The Spirit's gonna speak to you the word of God. When you come in and you're studying God's word in a congregational setting like this, attempt praying, Holy Spirit, what would you say to me tonight? The word of God's gonna be read and, and what are you speaking to me? And it's through the Spirit that we learn about God. A few more verses here, verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual with spiritual things. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So we compare one section of scripture with another section of scripture. We compare spiritual with spiritual. We look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Spirit of God begins to reveal things to us. Here's the contrast though. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. In this section of scripture, there's the spiritual man, the natural man, and then next week we'll look at the carnal man. And the natural man has no room for the spirit of God to work in his life. He dismisses the spirit of God, dismisses the instruction of the spirit, and he only looks at the scripture and creation through a natural view, through a natural mindset. So he walks away from a time in God's word, tries reading it on his own and gets absolutely nothing out of it. Why? Because the condition of his heart. That was me growing up. I just came at it from the natural mindset. I didn't come at it from a heart that had been touched by the testimony of God and open to the spirit of God because these things are spiritually discerned. Someone who's deaf can't enjoy the symphony. Someone who's blind can't enjoy a sunset. And someone who's not open to the spirit of God cannot understand the things of God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've come to church for months now, for years now, and you're like, I just don't ever get anything out of it. And every once in a while you look around and you go, other people are getting things out of it. Why don't I ever get anything out of it? I tried reading the Bible and I don't understand the Bible. Is maybe it's this, an openness of your heart to allow the spirit of God to teach you. Maybe you've only been looking at it through the natural lens, through the natural faculty apart from the spirit of God. In verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So we need to be looking at everything through a spiritual lens. For instance, even things that we see happening in in the world. How come we can't seem to understand as a nation what's happening in Israel and the Middle East. Because our leaders that don't know Christ, they only look at it through a natural view. I was watching the news this week and they were talking about Israel and they traced the history of Israel back to 1948. (laughs) I was like, that's why you don't get the conflict that's happening in Israel and 
with the Palestinians because you've only gone back to 1948. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to the, the, the beginning of history. But the natural man doesn't th- see things through a spiritual lens. So we wanna look at these different areas of our lives and look at it through the truth of scripture, through the, the spiritual. I'm always slow to come to that perspective. And once you start to look at things from the spiritual perspective, then no one judges you correctly. You, you become that, that weirdo Jesus follower and then people will put judgment upon you. In verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, if that isn't confusing, I don't know what is. Consider that. It says, who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? Then the next is we have the mind of Christ. What's being communicated in in verse 16 is a lot of times we don't know what God's plan and purposes are. We can't be his instructor, we can't be his counselor. But then the contrast in verse 16, but we do know what Christ's priority is. We do have the mind of Christ. I don't know all that God's doing, but I know his priority. How do we know Christ's priority? Philippians 2 tells us to esteem others better than ourselves, to be a servant, because that was the mind of Christ. Christ didn't come to be served, but he came to serve others. Two primary points in this chapter this evening, and the first is this, the testimony of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his beloved, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the spirit of God. And when the spirit of God meets the testimony of God, there's power. And God begins to move in the hearts and the lives of people. Tonight, would you come and enjoy both? Would you come to the communion table in that weakness and trembling and brokenness and enjoy the testimony of God, that you're loved by God, your sins are forgiven, the righteous requirements of the law, they've been paid for. Maybe you can't rejoice about very much in your life tonight. Rejoice in what Christ has done for you and then allow the spirit of God to minister to you. The spirit of God's here. The spirit of God is in you if you know Christ is your savior. And what encouragement, what message would the spirit give to you as you take communion tonight? If you don't know the Lord, would you come to Christ tonight? Would you come to that place of surrendering your heart and life to him? God loves you. He died for you. He rose again. What does it take to receive that love, to believe in your heart? That's what John 3.16 tells us, to believe. Do you believe that Christ died for you because you're a sinner, just like me, that he rose again? Christ, would you save me? If you've never made that decision As we head into communion, we're gonna be available on the sides and please come and let someone know I'm ready to receive Christ as my savior. If you've come with someone who's a believer, turn to them and say, would you pray with me? I'm ready to receive Christ as my savior. If you need to come back to the Lord tonight, come back to him. If you've been wayward, if your heart has turned away from him, turn back to him. It doesn't take a ceremony. It doesn't take walking down an aisle. It takes you right where you're at crying out to the Lord and saying, God, I'm reminded by the fact that that you love me. So let's continue in prayer and in worship. Father, we thank you for your love. We're humbled, we're 
thankful that you would pursue us by giving us your son to die for our sins and rose again. As we celebrate communion, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here to communicate to us what we need to know and what we need to understand. So would you bless this time? Again, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us opportunity to share this testimony, your testimony, God's story of redemption. In Jesus' name, 